Thanks for checking out the GMH podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Trump faces the music. E-scooters arrive in Hamilton. New ideas to boost voter turnout in this province. The Emergencies Act returns to court. It's equal pay day today. And game number one, fast approaching for Forge FC. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast begins now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Former U.S. President Donald Trump set to become the first former president to face criminal charges when he is arraigned later on today on charges related to business fraud. What's going to happen? What kind of charges could we expect to see? Let's bring in Reggie Giacchini, Washington correspondent with Global News. Reggie, good morning. Hey, good morning. Uh, You tweeted a photo this morning of, uh, well, kind of a protester, a cardboard cutout of Hillary Clinton, which perhaps exemplifies the circus-like atmosphere that was around Trump Tower yesterday. What is the buzz like in Manhattan this morning? I mean, it is a media circus here this morning, Rick. There are hundreds upon hundreds of media from around the world that are gathered outside of this courthouse. They are inside of a park that is expected to hold uh, a rally led by Republican Marjorie Taylor Greene later on this morning. This is a momentous uh, moment in this country where American political history is about to be rewritten. Donald Trump uh, is going to be in this courthouse in just a matter of hours uh, and become the first former president to ever find himself facing charges. And we have been told, Rick, just within the last couple of minutes from Trump's team that he is expected to speak from inside the courtroom. Uh, there's been uh, much mention about mugshots, fingerprints, handcuffs. What's the latest on all of that? So we're, we're not clear that a mugshot is going to be taken of the former president. Uh, and we know that he also will not be handcuffed when he walks into the courtroom. And that is simply because he is going to be surrounded by several members of the Secret Service. And there is no real flight risk here. But the balance of the processing is going to go uh, as any other Uh, incident like this would. There will be a a booking number that is given to the former president. He will be uh, forced to stand before the judge and he will have these charges read before him. And what we are understanding is that these charges are in the dozens, likely higher than 30, and most of them are going to link back to business fraud, all tied to those allegations of hush money payments uh, that were made to cover up alleged affairs that the president, the former president, has long denied. So when is this all going to go down and how long do you expect this to take? Well, the former president is expected to leave his uh, Fifth Avenue home sometime late this morning, maybe in and around the noon hour. It's about an eight kilometer drive from Trump Tower down to the courthouse here, probably take about half an hour. There will be some time inside for him to get processed. And then by the time the arraignment happens, that's only expected to last maybe five to ten minutes at the absolute most where the charges will be read and the public will actually find out what the charges are along with the former president. He'll then be whisked out, uh, potentially to be able to speak on the steps, maybe not. And then he heads home for a prime time address tonight. This is all going to be a very whirlwind moment that takes place over the next several hours. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Reggie Giacchini, Washington correspondent with Global News, following the latest on the uh, arraignment of former President Donald Trump, the first former president uh, that is expected to face criminal charges later on today in Manhattan. There was a lot of talk about whether or not TV cameras would be allowed in the courtroom. Is there an update on that? So the former president's team actually pushed back on this, saying that they did not want cameras inside uh, because it would, pro- it would portray the former president 
with uh, a presumption here of potential anything but innocence. But ultimately, uh, it was allowed by this judge for some still photographers to be in. So it's unclear if the former president is going to speak, who he may be speaking to, unless he has team members there that may record this on their phones. But we will get visuals from inside because of still photographs. And those photographs, again, will be what ultimately makes this this historic moment and provide some form of transparency into this procedure. Reggie, what's the likelihood that this case is going to be the first of a few dominoes to fall in terms of uh, President Trump, former President Trump's um, time in court? Is this the first of many, perhaps? This is definitely the first of many, and we do understand uh, from at least reporting that's come out over the last few hours that the uh, investigation linked to the mishandled classified document in Mar-a-Lago is potentially going to be far more uh, legally perilous for uh, the former president. We understand that members of the Secret Service are potentially going to have to testify. His former, uh, his attorney actually had to turn on him last week and testify before the grand jury in that incident as well. So this is one, it may not be uh, or carry the most legal films with it, but it now kind of takes that shield of invincibility that this former president has carried with him for the last several years. Uh, this will be the first, it will likely not be the last, and this will carry through his time running through the 2024 campaign. Do you expect his speech tonight in Florida to be heavily on what is happening today? Well, it's, it's possible it might not be, Rick, and that's because the former president has put out a number of defamatory statements uh, about the process and the Manhattan District Attorney. Uh, and because of that, there's a real possibility here that the judge could put a gag order in place and prevent the former president from being able to speak about this case to the audience that already sees him as a political victim. So we'll have to wait to see what the judge does. If that gag order goes in place, it will make it much more difficult for Donald Trump to focus at least on this case. Very interesting and historic day in the United States. Reggie, great job following it. We'll uh, seek out your coverage later on here on 900 CHML. Thanks for the time. Thank you. Reggie Tacchini, Washington correspondent with Global News. You can also watch the latest happenings on Global News' YouTube page. And, of course, we'll have all the details coming up on Global News at 530 and 6 as well. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. You're going to see 150 of these electric scooters rolling around in Dundas and in Ward's one, two, and three, basically from Dundas all the way to Ottawa Street. And this is being done to, well, complement Hamilton's bike share program. Um, a couple more hundred of these are going to be added over the duration of the one-year pilot. And, well, the hope is to get people moving around. Uh, Stuart Lyons is the CEO of Bird Canada, the company responsible for unleashing these e-scooters into the city, and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Stuart, good morning. How are you? Not too bad. How are you, Rick? I'm good. Does does this e-scooter program work the same way as the bike sharing program? Uh, except the fact that, well, I believe the bike share program is a city program, so it's a subsidized city program, whereas we're uh, independent and uh, we uh, we don't cost the city, uh, sorry, we don't cost taxpayers uh, a dime to operate. In fact, we, we actually pay to operate in the city, so uh, it's, a, it's a different experience altogether. What is the cost to get on one of these e-scooters and, and zip around the city? Um, typically, uh, it's not that much different than public transit. Uh, the cost is $1.15 to begin the ride and $0.42 cents a minute. So if you, the average trip is around four to five kilometers in and around that range. So, you know, a few minutes on a, on an e-scooter will cost you, you know, two to three bucks, four bucks, something in that range. And to use this, you need to use the Bird Canada app. Is that correct? 
That's right. You can download the app in the uh, uh, the Apple App Store or the Google Play Store, or there's even an option for people that don't have uh, smartphones. What are your expectations going into this? Um, expectations are similar to the other cities we've launched in Canada, which is, you know, the city will hopefully achieve three things. They'll have a new sustainable form of, of transit that's, uh, that's green friendly and, and doesn't obviously uh, create uh, CO2 emissions. Um, that will engage with the community and the community will embrace it, which we've, we've been able to do successfully in other markets. And number three is we'll reduce all heck of a lot of uh, vehicle traffic, uh, vehicle trips uh, in, in and around Hamilton, typically around 40% of the trips taken uh, on a scooter replace a vehicle trip. We have a couple more minutes with Stuart Lyons, the CEO of Bird Canada. You can find out more information online at birdcanada.ca, the operator of the e-scooter pilot program here in Hamilton. Uh, these scooters have been banned in places like Toronto and Paris over safety concerns. Uh, what safety measures are being taken here to ensure that Hamilton riders remain safe? Yeah, actually, you know, the, if, a few years ago, the safety concern was a bigger thing. Um, and, and I would argue that Toronto's issues are more just, you know, political and, and, and trying to deal with their own issues coming out of COVID more so than actually safety concerns. But, you know, in terms of safety, I mean, the vehicles have come a long way. These are very highly uh, technological vehicles that are, you know, commercial grade vehicles, and they have all kinds of features that prevent them from doing certain things. And as we also do in the app as well, whether it's double riding or riding while intoxicated or uh, riding on sidewalks and all those things uh, create a, a safer experience for the rider. And there's been lots of studies done uh, on the safety of e-scooters. At the end of the day, what they found is that e-scooters and bicycles have a similar safety profile. So there's no, it's no different than anything we've been doing for a hundred years, which is ride bicycles. And the same kind of thing, you know, when you, you, when you want to wear a helmet, when you ride a bike, you should also wear a helmet when you ride a scooter. Uh, Bird Canada, we have uh, 30 more seconds. Bird Canada operating e-scooter programs in other cities like Ottawa, Windsor, uh, out uh, west as well. What have you learned from what you've achieved in those cities? Um, uh, lots of things. I think we've learned how to kind of fine-tune the placement of vehicles, how to integrate with the community better. And, and as I said, you know, one of the things we're very proud of is the, is the, you know, is the amount of vehicles we've been, we've been driving out of, out of cities. And, you know, I would argue that for a city... Um, to, you know, to not be able to have to spend a lot of taxpayers' dollars to really reduce vehicle traffic in downtown areas, um, this is a pretty yeah, easy and, and pretty exciting way to do it. Sounds like it. Stuart, appreciate the time. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. Stuart Lyons is the CEO of Bird Canada, the company operating the e-scooters here in Hamilton. More details online at birdcanada.ca. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Well, Ontario's chief electoral officer calling for a ban on opinion polls in the lead up to elections. It's after voter turnout in the 2022 election came in at about 44%. That was the lowest in Ontario's history. Not only that, but Greg Essensa wants um, to see voting days held on weekends and on school holidays, all in an effort to get more people to the ballot box. Kim Wright is the founder and principal of Wright Strategies and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Kim, thanks for waking up with us this morning. How are you? I'm fantastic. Thanks for having me. Your thoughts on what uh, Mr. Essensa is uh, uh, suggesting here? So his comments about the polling data influencing people to stay home is actually incorrect, and especially in the last two weeks of this campaign, those polling numbers that he's referencing that sort of 
stymied voter turnout a bit uh, and frankly demoralized the opposition campaigns came out well in advance of the election and in fact set the tone for the entire campaign. That was what they were designed to do when they were quote unquote leaked uh, to media outlets. So his comments about releasing polls in the last two weeks is is completely misses the mark. Now, there are things that we need to do in terms of uh, increasing voter turnout. I think they could be explored, including voting on weekends, uh, certainly opening up more polling locations, and as I like to say, dragooning the public service into actually working elections instead of waiting for volunteers uh, and, and staffing coming from the public. Those are the things that they actually need to do to make voting more accessible. And then in terms of where polling and media and and the like come into play, well, frankly, that's up to the campaigns to run a more swagger-filled campaign. And then there's one last thing I will say to Mr. Asenza when he listens to this either live or on the uh, podcast, you know, opening up more opportunities at elections, uh, elections Ontario offices is actually quite important. There's such a heavy reliance on mail-in ballots, which are very complicated, when in fact, what they should be doing is encouraging more people to show up at the return at the returning office, wherever a returning office happens to be, and then they can have those votes transferred back to their home communities. We see that in the federal election. It's not promoted. There's such an over-reliance on mail-in ballots that, frankly, don't really work as well as just going to a polling station wherever you happen to be to vote for your home community. Some of our listeners might roll their eyes after I make this suggestion, but would a longer election campaign lead to more people eventually casting a ballot? No, it's not so much about the about the length of time of an election period. It really is making sure that there are more opportunities where people are at to go vote. Um, so I've seen in, in campaigns that we've seen polling stations or uh, ball- balloting centers at major tourism areas. So I live in downtown Toronto. There was one by the, the ferry terminal to go to the island. So great during a summer campaign. Oh, right. I can go vote now. Making those opportunities opportunities where people are at, making it very easy for people to go and vote. And then it's up to the the campaigns themselves to make voting more interesting and and why it matters and how can it matter. Um, so it's it's double components, but from a from the chief electoral officer standpoint, make sure that it's accessible, make sure it's easy to do, and make sure it's not more complicated than it needs to be. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Kim Wright, founder and principal, Wright Strategies. Uh, you're listening online as well, 900CHML.com and the Radio Player Canada app. We're talking about Ontario's chief electoral officer calling for a ban on the opinion polls in the lead up to elections. Does Mr. Asenza have any power to make these changes or are these simply suggestions? Well, these are simply suggestions. Ultimately, he can make some changes to it, but in terms of election periods uh, and in terms of when we can and can't have uh, polling data, he's going to have to work with the with the parties as well as with the legislature on that. And the reality is that, again, there's no evidence to suggest that that is what sways voters to go out or stay at home. So I think it, I think it's incumbent on Mr. Asenza to look at what are the rules that are actually hindering people from showing up to the polling uh, stations and, and work around that. But again, we've seen 
we've seen the the trends to releasing these big polls uh, early in the campaign or even just after just after a debate, for example, when people are first starting to pay attention uh, to to move away from having polling data available. It isn't what's keeping, as I said, it's not what's keeping people out of the polling stations. It makes for a great media headline for Mr. Asenza, but that's not what's keeping people. And I think it's important that they look at what are the processes and policies within Elections Canada, Elections Ontario that are making it really complicated for people to go vote uh, and and work around those those components. Look, I think everyone should go out and vote, but I recognize that that, that me having a date day uh, to go out and vote is not what everybody normally does, but I wish we would get there. Do you think this could be potentially solved by uh, instituting some sort of online voting system? Now, what we've seen uh, in many jurisdictions that have online voting systems is that it does not bounce up the voter turnout substantially. But there are opportunities to look at things. Yes, we should look at how do we make sure that there's online voting. I also saw in the last election that some communities had drive through voting, you know, much like you go to your Tim Hortons, you could also go cast your ballot. <laughs> Just interesting ways that we're seeing different communities try different things. Uh, and, and there is no right or wrong answer. It really is uh, looking at those combination of things to make sure people come out to vote more, uh, uh, more fully. I, I also don't think we should go to what the Australians do, which is to compel people to vote. It's mandatory to vote uh, in Australian elections. It doesn't have higher engagement. Yes, there might be higher voter turnout, but there's not higher uh, voter engagement that ends up happening as a result. So uh, it's both the practical and the and the making making campaigns much more interesting. I would suggest that voter turnout would be greatly boosted at a drive-through ballot box if you're giving away Timbits or DQ blizzards, but that would be <laughs> against the rules. Kim, we'll have to leave it there. Thanks for your time this morning. Thank you so much and have a wonderful day. You too. Kim Wright, founder and principal, Wright Strategies, chiming in on uh, opinion polls leading up to elections. She makes some good points on how they are worry, uh, worthy of uh, staying as is. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Police will be given more tools to restore order in places where public assemblies can constitute illegal and dangerous activities, such as blockades and occupations as seen in Ottawa, the Ambassador Bridge, and elsewhere. These tools include strengthening their ability to impose fines, That was more than a year ago when Prime Minister Justin Trudeau invoked the Emergencies Act to, well, um, beginning of the end for the protesters in Ottawa, in Coots, Alberta, and in other places here in the nation. Welcome back to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. And uh, even though we've gone through the Rouleau Commission, which found that the government met the legal threshold for using the Emergencies Act, the Canadian Civil Liberties Association is in federal court, along with government lawyers and some others who are uh, have a stake in this. And, and they're arguing that the Trudeau government's use of the Emergencies Act was an overreach. It's part of a three-day hearing. It's being presided over by Justice Richard Mosley that opened yesterday in Ottawa. Kara Zweibel is a lawyer and director of the Fundamental Freedoms Program at the Canadian Civil Liberties Association and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Kara. How are you today? I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm good. Lawyers for the federal government started things off yesterday. What did you hear from them? 
So the the federal government is taking the position that um, the court shouldn't even hear or decide this case. They're arguing that because the emergency is over, the declaration is no longer in effect, um, that the case is effectively moot and the the court just shouldn't rule on it. Um, they've, They've also taken the position that uh, at least some of the applicants, um, CCLA is an applicant, but there are others, uh, don't have the, the sort of legal standing to bring this, this case. So they, they started with those arguments. And on the, the question of mootness, the, the judge reserved the decision and said, let's, you know, let's hear the case on the merits and we'll, we'll decide that later. The uh, Canadian Civil Liberties Association in the past has argued that what we saw in Ottawa did not constitute a national security threat. Does that continue to be the the basis or the foundation of your argument? It does. I mean, the the Emergencies Act, the legislation requires, um, you know, a a threat to the security of Canada, and that um, has a a specific meaning assigned to it in, in other legislation in the CSIS Act. Um, and we continue to take the position that that threshold wasn't met and are continuing to sort of push the government to to show how how in their view it was. There, there's clear that there are sort of different interpretations of what that what those words might mean. Now, as I mentioned before, the commission did rule that the federal government met the legal threshold for using the Emergency Measures Act. So why pursue this challenge? Are you uh, dismissing what the Rulo Commission found? Not at all. The the commission and the court process are about two distinct issues, although I, I acknowledge that the, there is some subtlety here to sort of the distinction. Um, you know, what the commission is looking at was was whether, um, the, the way I've heard it explained, which which I found a helpful way, is whether the, the emergency was justifiable. And one thing that the court is looking at is whether it was justified. In other words, whether the reasons that the government put forward at the time that they invoked the emergency, the reasons that they put before Parliament in getting them to to vote on the emergency, the reasons that they gave to the Canadian public, whether those established what had to be established under the statute. And the, the commissioner, uh, Commissioner Rouleau himself, in his uh, in his report, acknowledged that while he, you know, found that the legal threshold was met. This was a, you know, reasonable and informed people could disagree about it. And that ultimately it wasn't up to him to make a decision on the legality of the use of the act. That was a, a that was a task reserved exclusively for the court. Now, the government's reasoning for using the act was this was a national security event, a national security risk. And obviously you're not buying that. Well, it, it's not just about, you know, there's there's a couple of things under the Act that need to be established. One is that there's a threat to the security of Canada. We, we continue to say that we haven't sort of seen the evidence that supports that, um, especially when, when CSIS, uh, you know, the agency that's typically sort of charged with making determinations about threats to the security of Canada, um, it, it didn't think that the, the protest constituted a threat to the security of Canada, but, but also... You know, you have to, the government has to show that the, the situation is something that can't be dealt with by any other, you know, ordinary law. And the reality in our view is that, is that we did have the legal tools. There was definitely problems with, you know, garnering the resources, with, with coordination amongst different levels of government and different police agencies. But ultimately, the, the law was sufficient to deal with this situation. And the ordinary legal tools should have been used rather than using um, the extraordinary measures of the 
of the Emergencies Act. We have a couple more minutes with Kara Zweibel, lawyer and director of the Fundamental Freedoms Program at the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. We're talking about the uh, federal government's use of the Emergencies Act. It is now in federal courts. And, you know, I personally think the Trudeau government used the act to bring an end to what was really an embarrassing situation for the government. Uh, I don't think it was a national emergency either. Why do you think the government used the act? Yeah, I mean, I think ultimately they, I, I don't disagree with what you said. You know, they, they needed something to change. They needed, uh, they needed the protest to come to an end. They were getting a lot of pressure, um, you know, not just from within the country, of course, but also from the United States and um, starting to, um, having the United States starting to question whether Canada was a reliable trading partner. Uh, there were starting to be the possibility of, of this impacting some important, uh, trade deals that were sort of, um, you know, on the burner. So I think that all of those things prompted the government to to take these steps. Um, the other thing is we, we heard during the commission that, you know, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of concern as there should be from government about not interfering with operational police decisions. Um, and and really, I think one of the things that the invoking the Emergencies Act did was signal to the police in a very clear and immediate way we want you to do something about this right now. Um, and, you know, and it, and, and to be fair, I think that once the emergencies act was invoked, um, you know, the, the resources did eventually sort of come together and police were able to take the steps. But, but I, I think those, those steps that they took were the steps that they were going to take regardless of whether the act had been invoked. Like I said, there was just a, a real problem with getting the resources together and getting everyone on the same page to, to sort of manage the situation and, and put an end to the protest. In the last 40 seconds that we have, what happens or what will change if you, in fact, win this case in federal court? You know, the practical reality, of course, is that we don't go back in time and, and that nothing changes about, you know, the use of the act. What's significant, I think, is um, what this helps to explain to Canadians about the law and the legality around the use of the act. And, and also what it signals to future governments about when they can and when they cannot make use of the act. That's the, the significance. This is just one of many accountability mechanisms that the act has, and we, we think it's an important one. That's why we're pursuing this. Kara, appreciate your time. Uh, best of luck in court today and uh, tomorrow as well. Thank you. Kara Zweibel is a lawyer and director of the Fundamental Freedoms Program with the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Today is Equal Pay Day in Ontario and the Canadian Women's Foundation wants some action. And rightfully so, because Canada ranks 40th in the world when it comes to offering equal pay for equal work. Andrea Garage is the Vice President of Public Engagement at the Canadian Women's Foundation and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Andrea, good morning. How are you? Morning. Thanks for having me. I'm well. We still, sadly, have a ways to go to achieve wage parity in this province, in this country, let alone the rest of the world. Where are we at right now? Well, right now, nationally, women working full-time and part-time make 88 cents on the dollar that every man makes or that an average man makes. Um, But, you know, there's more to the gender pay gap than equal pay for equal work. And there are gender pay gaps, plural, 
So depending on who you are, for instance, some women have bigger gaps. Racialized women have a 67 cents to the dollar gap. Indigenous women, 65 cents to the dollar gap. Newcomer women, 71 cents to the dollar gap. Women with disabilities also face a much higher gap in terms of average earnings, average wages. So it's a complicated situation. It's a big story. Um, but we have to remember that, you know, it does impact all life stages. It happens when a girl is young, goes into her student debt years, and it actually accumulates to a pension gap that women experience. They usually retire with 80% of what men retire with. So these are really lifelong consequences. Well, exactly. There's this idea that, you know, what you make in your lifetime does accumulate. So if you have less opportunities to make money, less opportunities to save, if you are not able to retire at the same age as other people, you are going to be suffering. There's this dynamic that plays out that women just can't hang on to the money, oftentimes because their money, they're making less, they're in lesser paying jobs. The work that's women's work tends to be underpaid. And there's also this dynamic of women not being able to hold on to money in the same way so that they can't retire with as much funds to be able to live. And of course, they tend to live longer. And it's weird to think, I'm not sure if weird is the word, it's just the one that came to mind that in many households, it's the women who kind of look after the budget and, and what goes on with the earnings. And yet they're not earning as many uh, cents on the dollar as a man does. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that is just a major dynamic in Canada is that women do tend to do a lot of the caregiving work. So things like taking care of kids, taking care of elders, taking care of people even in the community. And you have this dynamic where, yes, this is important work, but it's unpaid work. So women often are taken up in their day with unpaid hours so that they can't do paid work. And this is where we have to look beyond equal pay for equal work. Of course, we need equal pay for equal work, and we don't often have that. That's something to address. But we also have to address the fact that women tend to have to do part-time work because they have to take time off to take care of other people. And that we also have this dynamic where women are not making as much money in the work that women tend to do, caregiving roles, things like um, supporting people in daycare, in physio, um, taking care of people with retail work. These are all underpaid professions. They tend to be where women can get jobs and can do this work. And it's really the underprotected and underpaid work that women tend to do. Those are all great points. Today is Equal Pay Day in Ontario. In 2023, women earn 88 cents for every man a dollar or every dollar a man earns. Uh, Andrea Gunraj is our guest, uh, Vice President, Public Engagement, Canadian Women's Foundation, as you listen to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Um, very recently, actually over the last number of years, um, many female athletes, sports teams, entertainers, musicians have helped lead the charge for equal pay. Has it moved the needle? Are you seeing some uh, engagement or more engagement or some development in this regard? Well, what we are seeing is that people are far more aware of these dynamics. You know, even 15 years ago, 10 years ago, I remember people debating, is the pay gap real? I remember people asking good questions. You know, is this something that we have to address? Are people just doing this by choice? They're making less money by choice. And now I don't see those same conversations. I see people asking smarter questions and having uh, smarter solutions as one of the things that we have to do. Um, so I think it's a really positive move in that sense. Get It's getting people talking about what they need to talk about. 
But we're also seeing this, um, you know, element where people are starting to recognize, okay, how can we get concrete and smart about this? I'm hearing people talk about pay transparency as one solution, this idea that you you are clear about what you make so other people know and that maybe they can negotiate. Maybe they can say, well, I would like to make the same amount. I would like to be in a pay band that matches other people, my peers at work. You're seeing even companies uh, being able to measure their own gender pay gap and say, hey, we do have a problem here and we're going to end it in five years. We're going to take steps in the right direction. But as of 2023, we know that not a single Canadian organization that measures a gender pay gap has closed that gender pay gap. And this is a six-year study. So we have a ways to go before we match our intentions with our behaviors and with the systems and the policies and practices that need to be in place. In the minute we have remaining for people like me and, and all of our listeners listening right now, we we know this is an issue. What can we do to help? Well, I think one of the things that we can do, we have to think about where we're voting. So if our representatives are coming to us and want our votes, we have to ask the question, what are you going to do to ensure gender equality? What are you going to do to end the gender pay gap? And if we don't like the answer, if we don't think the answer is robust enough, we don't have to give them their votes. That's number one. Number two, I think being clear about our pay at work can really help just with your peers at work to say, hey, this is what I'm making. I want to let you know um, so that you can negotiate the same thing. If that's possible in your workplace, that's great. But, you know, those of us that have leadership positions, we have something to do, too. We can change policies and practices. Let's put this on the agenda for strategic planning and for changes so that we can at least see the needle move in the right direction, maybe three to five years. Maybe we can be part of the solution because we have some power. I like it. Let's get the ball rolling a little faster on this. Andrea, really appreciate your time this morning. Uh, best of luck going forward. Thank you for having me. Andrea Gunraj is the Vice President, Public Engagements with the Canadian Women's Foundation. You can get more on the foundation and the work that they are doing online at CanadianWomen.org. Coming up in entertainment, some news about the new Indiana Jones movie. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Forge FC is getting ready to open defense of its uh, Canadian Premier League Championship on April 15th as they welcome uh, bitter rivals Cavalry FC to Tim Hortons Field. Bobby Smirniotis is the head coach of Forge FC and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Bobby, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. Doing well. Uh, last we spoke, it was uh, soon after you won your third Canadian Premier League championship. Um, let's talk about the offseason and how this team has uh, morphed and tweaked and changed in the, in the months leading up to this upcoming season. Yeah, the great thing about this off season is uh, we retained most of the group. You know, when you're coming off of a championship season and such a successful year we had in 22, you know, it was our, our target to retain uh, most of this group, bringing back 19 of uh, of 23 players, adding some uh, other key pieces, and uh, really getting a good preseason in. And here we are in the final stretch before our first match on the 15th. My guess, you know, winning three championships in the first four years of this league, it's an easy sell job to say, hey, stick with us. We're we're still trending upwards. Yeah, I think so. There's always uh, room for improvement. You know, that's uh, that's the biggest thing we have in our locker room and amongst, uh, amongst our players. 
but the most important thing is, I think, you know, we've uh, we've forged an identity in the way we play and the way we are and the, the entertaining product we put on the field. And I think that's fantastic for all of our uh, supporters and fans here in Hamilton. Do you have to do much as a coaching staff to motivate the team after all you've achieved? Yeah, I think that's uh, that's the toughest part. You know, we can work on tactics. We can work on making players better. Um but I think sometimes the, the biggest challenge, especially in modern sport, is keeping the players uh, hungry for more. Uh, I don't think it's a, it's a normal thing many days uh, in North American sport uh, to have teams winning multiple championships. Uh, we've been in the final four years, one of three of them. Um, so I think that's always our biggest challenge going into, into the season, making sure we keep this group sharp, making sure we keep them hungry, and knowing that uh, there's a target on our back across the league. There is a new playoff format in the CPL this season. Do you love it or hate it, or do you have to you know, see it in action before you make a decision on it? Yeah, I always have a simple motto to start the season. You know, give us a, give us a path to get there to the final, and uh, and we'll uh, we'll deal with it. So whichever way the playoff format is, I'm always uh, I'm always open to it. You know, it's clear cut, and uh, now we just have to go out and do our business. Does it make finishing first and or second uh, the the ideal spot to be in, or is it or is it a mentality? Might be a weird question for you, given that you've already won three championships. But hey, just get into the playoffs, and you never know what's going to happen. Yeah, of course. Uh, it's just the difference, I guess, we have this year is uh, is finishing the top of the standings also comes with a qualification into Champions League, a competition that uh, that we uh, took part in in uh, at the beginning of 2022, playing against Cruz Azul from Mexico. Um, so that's the first time that finishing uh, top of the standings actually gives uh, something to the club um, beyond just a, a little bit of uh, of prestige. Um, so I think that's the important component. So, you know, we've got a couple of new things uh, in front of us uh, this year, and I think the goal is to make sure that this club is playing in Champions League in 2024. And, and that is a big reward because there's a lot of rewards that come with that, and, and including uh, that, uh, I, I guess, you know, um, you know, piece on the mantle in terms of, hey, we're playing in the Champions League is, uh, listen, when it comes to uh, attracting players to the team, you can say, hey, next year we're going to be in the Champions League. Yeah, continental competition is everything that uh, that a high level player looks for. Well, whether that's a Canadian or or a foreigner, it's a, it's a massive thing for our club. We've done that for four years in a row. This is the first year, although we're uh, we're champion of the league. Um, there's been a reformatting in Concacaf, so there is no continental competition this year. So that's a little bit of uh, something that we usually look forward to as a club, having done it in each of, uh, of our years. Um, but I think that's uh, our extra motivation for this year to make sure that the club is, is doing that in 2024. We have another minute with Bobby Smirniotis, head coach of Forge FC, three-time Canadian Premier League champions. Uh, you recently welcomed local youth soccer club Hamilton United Elite as an official Forge FC development club. What does that mean? What are some of the benefits for you and Hamilton United Elite? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is is having alignment in the in the sport uh, within our city. I think that's that's very important. You know, Hamilton United is is covering the space of uh, of elite development in the, in the city. It's something we wanted to work on over the past uh, few years. Unfortunately, we've uh, we've gone through a pandemic and different things. Um, so this is uh, just the right time. It's the right time to bring alignment. It's the right time um, for us to provide our expertise um, to the development side of the game and making sure that uh, we're providing as, as much as we can from a football component to the youth in Hamilton soccer. Great chat. As always, Bobby, we're going to chat with one of your star players, Ashton Morgan, next week as we all rev up for game number one between Forge and Cavalry on April 15th. Thanks for the time today.
Thank you. Bobby Smirniotis, head coach, Forge FC. Get your tickets now online at forgefc.canpl.ca. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.